Chapters 9 and 10 of War and Woman by Mrs. St. Clair Stobart. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 My work during the next few days, whilst I awaited the arrival of the Corps, was well defined. I must buy or loan everything in the way of hospital equipment on which I could lay my hands. Mr. Buxton had, on behalf of his committee, put a sum at my disposal, and the Croix Rouge would, I knew, give all the assistance in their power. Meanwhile, Queen Eleonora had now returned to the palace from Philippopolis and her tour of hospitals along the line, and she very graciously sent me a message through Monsieur Delmar, director of the King's Botanical Gardens and major-domo at the palace, who had been very kind and helpful to me in many ways, that she wished me to come and talk to her about the Corps and our proposed work at Kirkilis. Accompanied by Monsieur Delmar and Dr. Radeff, I therefore went to the palace and was received by the Queen in her own private room. She spoke English perfectly, and appeared much interested in all I told her, and patted my hand approvingly as we talked. She would like, she told me, to make the acquaintance of the Corps, and hoped I would arrange for them to spend a night at Sophia on their way to Jamboli, that she might see them, and that they might have a rest after their long journey. Then, turning to M. Delmar, she told him he was to let me have a large consignment of blankets, shirts, sheets, and bed garments, which had just arrived for her from England and she also requested Dr. Radeff to help me in every way he could. I left the palace feeling that the Bulgarian nation were very fortunate in possessing this particularly capable and practical princess as their queen. There was no red tape or affectation of any sort about her. She was full of insight, intuition, and human sympathy. I had the privilege of seeing her and talking with her at the palace twice again, and each time I confirmed my first impression that her charm to me, at any rate, consisted in the fact that she was not a royal automaton, but a real, live woman. And now my way was clear, for Dr. Radeff generously put the storerooms of the Croix Rouge at my disposal with permission to take any equipment I desired. I accordingly selected blankets, bed linen, crockery, pots, pans, knives, forks, spoons, etc., to my heart's content. I now had, taken in conjunction with equipment which the Corps would bring, everything I was likely to be able to get except beds. And beds, of a portable nature, were, I was informed, unprocurable, having all been requisitioned for the existing hospitals in Sofia and elsewhere. But beds I must have, so I took no notice of the pessimists and began a systematic hunt in unlikely places, the likely places having presumably all been emptied of contents. For two whole days I was unsuccessful, but finally, on a deserted wharf, I came upon some suspicious-looking packing cases, from one of which was projecting something uncommonly like the leg of an iron bedstead. I therefore fetched some workmen whom I saw in the distance with some tools, told them to unfasten the wooden case, and lo and behold, the usual miracle, which always comes when faith and will are backing an ideal. The packing-case and many other packing-cases contained between them seventy-five light, portable iron bedsteads, which any of the hospitals in Sofia would have given their eyes to possess, iron bedsteads which henceforth were mine. For no sooner had the first case disclosed its treasures than the owner, by the help I suppose of my magic wishing carpet, suddenly appeared, and I commandeered against payment the whole lot, exactly the very beds I wanted. And now all I had to do was to arrange for mattresses and pillowcases of sacking, which would all eventually be filled with straw, to be prepared. 
Also, I must procure some interpreters, not only to translate the wishes of our future patients, but to help us on the journey. I was particularly fortunate in securing the services of four young men, two of whom were English and spoke Bulgarian, whilst two were Bulgarian and spoke English, and also two Bulgarian girl teachers who spoke excellent English. All was now in readiness for the arrival of the Corps. I knew nothing of the size of the hospital, nor the number of patients we should be given to treat, but as I had procured all that was procurable in the way of hospital necessaries, and I knew that the Corps would also bring all they had been able to collect under Miss Streetfield's able superintendence, things would probably work out all right. In the recipe of that delicate, dainty success, the heavier ingredients of organization and willpower must be lightly whipped with faith to taste. In this case, at all events, things worked out in the most marvelous fashion. For on receipt of my cable, my second-in-command and officers of the Corps in London contrived within a week to collect from friends six hundred pounds. With this money they purchased surgical instruments and appliances, blankets, stores, and other equipment, a perfect supplement to that which I had been able to requisition in Sophia. And now, at last, the Corps were due to arrive, and with all arrangements completed, I had the satisfaction of welcoming to Bulgaria the first company of women who have, as a self-contained unit, set up and administered a hospital of war within the zone of active operations. End of Chapter 9 Chapter 10 The unit numbered 16 and included, besides myself as commandant and directrice, two sisters, Miss V. Adams and Miss P. Gadsden, four other fully qualified trained nurses, six members for general duty as cooks, dressers, nurses, etc., and the three women doctors, Dr. Alice Hutchison, Dr. D. Tudor, and Dr. E. Ramsbotham. Of the splendid services which these three doctors rendered to the wounded, and of the spirit in which they took all the rough and tumble of the expedition, I cannot speak too highly. The contingent arrived without mishap at Sophia. They had expected from my earlier instructions, before I knew of the royal command, that they would be travelling straight through to Jambuli. But hand-baggage was quickly collected, the heavier luggage and equipment left in the van to be found again at Jamboli, and the whole party was conveyed to the Hotel Continental. Here our friend Dr. Radeff had kindly arranged for their reception for the night. The effects of the four days and nights' continuous journey without sleeping bursts were soon obliterated by a wash and a good breakfast, and the morning was spent in seeing the town, though the public buildings were, of course, in consequence of the war, all closed. In the afternoon, Monsieur Delmas most kindly himself conducted the little party over the Royal Botanical Gardens and the greenhouses of the palace. Then, at 7 p.m., we all met at the Hotel Bulgaria, which is just opposite the palace, and were here joined by Dr. Radoff, who accompanied us on our visit to the Queen. At the palace we were met by Monsieur Delmas, and were shown into an anteroom which formed one of the long suite of fine big rooms with parquet floors, and walls hung with oil portraits of King Ferdinand and his ancestors, of his first Queen Marie-Louise of Bourbon, and of their four children, Prince Boris, Prince Cyril, and the princesses Eudoxie and Nadezda. Also, of course, portraits of Queen Eleonora. We waited a few minutes, and were then ushered into a larger room beyond. Here the members formed up in line, in readiness for inspection by the Queen, who, dressed in a nurse's uniform, soon appeared. 
she first received me and made many kind inquiries as to how the members had fared on the journey from London, and as to the arrangements made for our farther journey next day to Jamboli. Next I introduced her to our officers, and then Her Majesty spoke to the members as they stood in line, and asked each in turn to describe to her the special work for which she was prepared. She showed great interest when Mrs. Godfrey, as cook-in-chief, explained that the corps cooks were trained not only to work in well-equipped kitchens, but that they learned in camp to dig their own campfire trenches, and to build of mud and turf their own chimneys and fireplaces, and were thus independent of conditions. This very much pleased Queen Eleonora, and turning to one of her ladies-in-waiting, she said, "'Ah, what an excellent thing it would be if our Bulgarian ladies went through this training!' and then Her Majesty gave attention to our uniform, on which she bestowed much praise. It struck her, she said, as being eminently practical and workmanlike. It consists of Norfolk jacket with large concertina pockets, full skirt, which divides back and front when required for riding, either side saddle or astride, and pith helmet hat, all made in a greeny-gray tweed material. Shirts are of white silk for officers and of white cotton for the rank and file in ordinary times whilst in camp and on active service, as at the moment, all wear flannel shirts of a colour to match the uniform. The principle upon which the uniform had been selected was serviceability in the field, and it has admirably answered its purpose, though there is too much skirt. For work in the hospital and for cooking, washable linen frocks and white caps and aprons are worn. The question of uniform has never been to me unimportant for I believe that clothes, despicable as we think them, are as, to Felsdrock remarks, so unspeakably significant. It is, as a rule, precisely those who devote the most time and money to clothes, and who wear clothes that are in every sense extravagant, who have least appreciation of their value as symbols. Women who shrink from wearing in the street anything which betokens a uniform are not as a rule afraid to wear garments which, if they represent anything at all, are representative of ideas that are unnameable. The shrinking from wearing clothes which are distinctive of an idea means a shrinking from acknowledgement of that idea. The desire of the part of women to wear something that will not be discovered as a uniform means a half-hearted belief, or none, in the idea behind the uniform, or it betokens lack of faith in the capacity of the public to recognize an idea. Is there an idea, a distinctive idea, at the back of your work, whatever it may be? Then that idea must be represented by clothes. If the idea has truth and honesty and soundness in it, the clothes will savor of truth and honesty and soundness. They will not be outrageous unless the idea at the back of them is outrageous. If then there is a sound idea at the back of the work which women are to do in warfare, it must be symbolized for the public as the Boy Scout movement has been symbolized by a distinctive uniform, a uniform which, without being in any sense extravagant, is readily recognized, and speaks for itself as representative of work, not of doldom or half-heartedness. Women will never, as a sex, do useful work till they wear clothes which are appropriate to work. And, though this may come as a revelation to many, there is no physiological reason against this. The essence of all science, says Carlyle, lies in the philosophy of clothes. Queen Eleonora had the wisdom to observe that our uniform, though possibly not becoming to good looks, was very becoming to good work, and she thoroughly approved. Her Majesty then, after she had walked down the line and talked with each in turn, 
including, of course, the doctors, in whom she showed great interest, told me to disband the members and let them disperse about the room. The two young princesses, stepdaughters of the queen, were also present. They were about fifteen and sixteen years of age, and looked very charming in white princess frocks, made quite plainly, except for some beautiful Bulgarian embroidery on the yoke. They were also, to the manner born, and moved around amongst us all, and talked to everybody in English, understanding excellently how to make even the shyest feel at ease. They themselves were too modest to tell us, but the Queen mentioned that they also were taking a share in the work of alleviating the overwhelming burden of national suffering, and every morning with their own hands these little princesses baked bread for the wounded soldiers and took it themselves each day to the hospitals. Finally, the Queen, before she left, expressed again to me her gratitude for our goodwill and proposed services to her soldiers. Then she and the princesses gave to each of us signed photographs of themselves, also packets of chocolate for the journey, after which, bidding us Godspeed, Her Majesty left us. After a little further conversation with the princesses, the ladies-in-waiting, Monsieur Delmar, Dr. Radeff, and the officers in attendance, we departed, feeling that a motive of loyalty and personal affection for Bulgaria's queen would now be added to our motive of loyalty to our own cause, and give additional zeal and enthusiasm to our work of nursing the soldiers of the Bulgarian nation. The next morning, when we arrived at six o'clock at Sofia Station, we found awaiting us a courier from the palace. He had been sent by the Queen with a kind message of farewell, and also with a large case of provisions for the long train journey to Jamboli. There was no time then to write a letter of thanks, but we arrived at Philippopolis that afternoon. The train stopped for half an hour, and we were met by the British Consul General and his wife, Mr. and Mrs. Wilkie Young, who came to the station to greet us and most kindly offered any assistance in their power. I was then, by their kind help, enabled to dispatch my telegram to the Queen without the usual delay and bother of long hours of waiting at the censor's office. The half-hour went all too quickly whilst we talked, over glasses of tea served in Russian fashion with slices of lemon and no milk, in the crowded station-room with Mr. and Mrs. Young, about their good work of organization of relief for the families of the soldiers and of the general prospects of the war, etc., we were sorry not to see more of Philippopolis, a beautiful little town named after Philip of Macedon, and ideally placed amongst five rocky hills. But after this point the interest of our journey was intensified. For we were now drawing near to Jamboli, and instead of taking the usual southerly route via Adrianople to Kirkkilis, it was necessary, as the Turks had cut this line of rails, to travel eastwards via Starazagora to Jamboli and thence traverse the Rodop Mountains and the Tracian Plains, a seven-day's trek in the ubiquitous bullock wagon. As our train drew up at the little ramshackle town of Jamboli, at midnight in pouring rain and pitch-black darkness, I guessed we should thenceforth have need of all the resourcefulness at our command. To my relief I found that, by order of Dr. Radeff, the Croix-Rouge had kindly arranged for officials to meet us with automobiles and convey us and our hand-baggage to night quarters at the Roman Catholic Convent Hospital, about two miles from the station. Here we were hospitably received by the Sisters of Mercy. We slept in wards lately occupied by wounded soldiers, and early next morning, in the chapel ante-room, we breakfasted on tea without milk, the hard brown bread of the country, and white sheep's milk cheese and now the task before us was to procure ox-carts. 
forty it was reckoned would be needed for ourselves and the equipment, eighty oxen or buffaloes and forty drivers, and make a start that evening, if possible. But it was still raining in torrents. We were two miles from the station, from which the start must be made, owing to the heavy luggage. The cars of last night had vanished, been requisitioned elsewhere, no conveyance of any sort was available, and the mud was in places knee-deep. Everybody who had ever at any time known anything about anything had gone to the war, and if by chance, with one's Bulgarian interpreters safely pinned to one side, one ever did find the right person who was likely to be able to give information as to carts and oxen, etc., that right person invariably turned out to be a Greek or a Turk who couldn't understand Bulgarian, and one had to begin all over again. It is true that my friend the Commandant had, on my previous visit, said I was to let him know when I returned, and that he would help me to get all I wanted. But when, after considerable difficulties, I succeeded in running to earth the Commandant, behold, it was a different Commandant, who knew not Joseph, and had never heard of the Convoy Corps. He was very kind and sympathetic, and the contrast between this stolid Bulgarian and my impetuous English character might have been interesting to psychologists. But I was not out for psychological study, and it was distinctly troublesome to find that nothing whatever had yet been done towards procuring the large number of bullock wagons we required. For to me, every hour's delay in getting on the move was of fatal importance. On the one hand, we were still separated by seven days from the place where lay our work, and if the war were to end before we arrived, our journeyings and labors might be, I feared, in vain. On the other hand, the Bulgarians had swept the Turkish forces victoriously before them along the route we were to follow, up to the present. But if the tide of battle should unexpectedly turn in favor of the Turks, and the Turkish army were to roll back and retake the Thracian battlefields over which we had to pass, ellipsis. I was fully conscious in the secret recesses of my own mind of this latter risk, and indeed the Turks have since returned step by step across our trek. But unless one acts in commonplace moments upon the inspiration of one's more valiant moments, nothing of value is ever achieved. And nothing that is worth doing is ever accomplished without some risk, I was on Mohammedan territory, and I felt, as Mohammed once had felt, that if the sun now stood on my right hand and the moon on my left, ordering me to desist, I could not obey. The risks only stimulated resourcefulness and determination to push on with all speed, and before the day was over, all obstacles had been overcome. Eighty oxen and buffaloes were being yoked to forty carts by forty Bulgarian and Turkish drivers, and all that now remained to be done was to procure provisions for the trek. We had been told that this would be a simple matter, that there was no need to bring food from Sofia, that Jamboli would be able to provide us with all the food we should require en route to Kirkulis. An interesting bit of mythology quite unfounded on fact. We found that every atom of food there may have ever been in this straggling village had already been consumed by the thousands of transport drivers who had from the beginning of the war traversed this same route to and from the front. The kind commandant and his kind wife both did their utmost and accompanied us in our raid upon the shops. But when we got there the cupboard was bare, and so the poor corps had none. The only result was two half loaves of sour brown bread, two small tins of sardines, and a couple of hundred precious eggs. The usual reassuring labels, eggs new laid, eggs equal to new laid, eggs were all lacking, 
and we had to take on trust eggs that, for aught we knew, might not have been laid within the memory of man. Within the memory of woman, those eggs are likely not to be forgotten for many a long day. They will thus enjoy immortality at both ends of their existence. We had, however, no choice but to rely on optimistic assurances that we should be able to supplement our larder at Kisiligach and at other villages through which we should pass. More mythology. For it was a case all the time of, if you are passing, you can pass. But à la guerre comme à la guerre. Nothing was of consequence compared to the fact that our tumbrils were at last all loaded. Twenty-eight with luggage and equipment, and all we had to do now was to stow ourselves away. Two in each of the twelve remaining carts fastened the Bulgarian flag, red, green, and white, to the leading cart, for we were now a part of the Bulgarian army. And get away! End of chapter 10